Okay. So we continue our series uh, this morning as we go through the uh, gospel according to Matthew. And um, we get to sort of a transitional point here. Um, the last, uh, last sermon that we had finished like this. It says, and Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. This is Matthew 4, 23. Teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. That's sort of a summary statement of the first four chapters of the book of Matthew. And now we get into chapters five through seven is this uh, extended teaching time. He went through their synagogues teaching and thus we get to chapter five, six, and seven and get the Sermon on the Mount, which is the bulk of Jesus' teaching here. And then when we get to eight and nine, we see more of Jesus' miracles. So that's the other part of that summary in 4.23, that he was um, healing every disease and every affliction. So this is kind of a, a slow down, slowing down opportunity to look at more explicitly Jesus' teaching. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the Beatitudes, and we're going to be doing the Beatitudes in one sermon. I have no idea how this is, going to, this is going to work. But I do know that two years ago, we did preach through the Sermon on the Mount, and we did a sermon for every one of the Beatitudes. So if you're interested in a more slowed-down teaching, that's available on our website. And if you would like a more overview, then, uh, then buckle up. <laughs> um, what's interesting about that, though, is um, I was looking back at some of those sermons that we preached a couple years ago, and I don't even remember half of what I said, which means that most of you probably don't remember anything that I said two years ago. Um, After President Obama back in 2008 was inaugurated as president, I remember reports um, of the news saying that the words that the president spoke in that inaugural speech uh, would be etched in stone one day. And whether that's true or not, I don't know. But I do know that Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, 35, that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That all of Western civilization as we know it, and the mor- morality as we know it, is built on the Sermon on the Mount. It's remarkable and it should be striking to us that this poor Jewish carpenter got up and spoke one day in all of the world as we know it was utterly shaped by his words. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will stand and remain forever. As we look here and we see this kind of climax of Jesus' teaching, it's also helpful for us to remember that Jesus, in a way, has been geographically walking through the places that Israel, his people, walked through, right? He exiled down to Egypt, Out of Egypt I called my son. He was baptized himself, as the scriptures will tell us, that all of Israel was baptized when they went through the sea. And now Jesus comes to that point where he stands up on the mountain and he gives us his word. He gives us the law in a sense. In a sense we can say Jesus is recapitulating for us the law that was given to Moses at Sinai. Mountains are massively significant in Matthew's gospel. It's on the mountain that we get his law. It's on the mountain that we experience the transfiguration. He's on the mount, and he sits down. 
And so we have eight Beatitudes, eight Beatitudes. And I would suggest that the first and the last Beatitude are sort of sandwiching six promises between them. So the first and the eighth have these assurances that such people have the kingdom of heaven. And it seems to me that Jesus means to tell us that these six promises in the middle of them are the blessings of the kingdom. In other words, these six things are what you can count on when you're part of God's kingdom. It's what the kingdom brings. It brings comfort. It brings earth ownership. It brings satisfying, filling righteousness. It brings mercy to us. And it gives us a vision of God. And it gives us, finally, the awesome title as sons and daughters of God. And my friends, we don't have to pick and choose among these promises. They all belong to us in the kingdom. That's the implication I would suggest. When Jesus begins, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and ends with the assurance, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're ours. Sons and daughters of God now. Satisfying, soul-satisfying righteousness Comfort, a vision of who God is. You know, many modern people would say that the Sermon on the Mount uh, is a wonderful ethic of sorts. That even those that are secularists would suggest that the Sermon on the Mount is a wonderful ethic. But it seems that as um, the world becomes more and more... um, Secular and the West is moving into a, a, a time of, of post-Christianity, post-Christendom, which means that the, that the society as we know it is no longer marked by a commonly held belief in Judeo-Christian values and morality, that this might not be the case anymore, but it might also give us a helpful insight into the nature of the Sermon on the Mount. What do I mean by that? Well, let me show you. So Virginia Stem Owens is a uh, college professor at a uh, secular university, and um, she gave the assignment to many of her students to read the Sermon on the Mount and then to write a paper reflecting on the nature of the Sermon on the Mount. And she was vastly surprised to hear that almost all of her students hadn't even heard of it. They hadn't even heard of the Sermon on the Mount. So what we get here from the reflections of her students is a perspective on the Sermon on the Mount that we probably have not got uh, previously in history. She says this, she says, most of the students at my university come from middle-class, conservative, Republican families. The vices here, like the, val- uh, like the values, are traditional, weekend drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, etc. things a parent can understand. Therefore, when I assigned my freshman English class the Sermon on the Mount, a selection and a rhetoric textbook that was taken from the King James Version, I had expected them to have at least a nodding acquaintance with the reading and to express a modicum of piety in their written responses. After all, Texas has always been considered at least marginally part of the Bible Belt. The first paper I picked up began like this. In my opinion, religion is one big hoax. I was mildly surprised since it came from a student who had never expressed a single notion the entire, entire semester. I glanced at the next paper. It said, there is an old saying that you shouldn't believe everything you read, and that applies in this case. Okay, I thought, maybe there's just a fluke. So I reached for the third paper. It's hard to believe something that has been written down thousands of years ago. In the Bible, Adam and Eve weren't the first two people. And if they were, where did the black people come from? Also, the Bible says nothing about dinosaurs, and I think God would have some mention of that. I put down my red pen. 
this was no fluke. What I had here was a major trend. And as I read on, the answer to my first question became very clear. Quote, the stuff that churches preach is extremely strict and allows for no fun without thinking it's a sin. I did not like the essay entitled Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read. It made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. And finally, the things asked in the sermon are absurd. To look at a woman is adultery. That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have ever heard of. What this essay helps us to understand is the terror that truly is the Sermon on the Mount. When we can objectively step back and see what our Lord is actually calling us to is nothing less than absolute and complete and devotion to him and his moral standards. The point is that every human being that truly looks into the Sermon on the Mount will see the terror that it really is, for they will see that none of us even closely matches up to the standard that the Lord Jesus gives us here. Let's read our text this morning, and we'll go through it. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to end there. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we are grateful that you've given it to us, and you've not left us alone. And in this text and in these coming sermons, we have all the more evidence that you've not left us without instruction. You've taught us how to live. You've given us a high and regal teaching here. And yet as we stand before it, we know that none of us can live to this standard without your gracious, empowering spirit. So Father, we ask. We ask for your spirit to come. We ask for your spirit to come upon the church afresh as it did at Pentecost and to empower us towards holiness, to empower us on mission, to help us, Lord. And Father, we do also ask that the Spirit would lead us and guide us into all truth and that all the words of our Lord Jesus would be brought to our remembrance and that we would be comforted uh, in the good news of the gospel. We're grateful, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, it's helpful as we begin to look at this, these Beatitudes and realize that they are, um, they are a little unique from the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. It's easy for us to look at them as just part of the Sermon on the Mount, but I would suggest that we approach them with a different disposition and instead see what they're describing here for us is they're describing simply what a Christian is. They are a state of being. 
blessed are. And yes, there is a sense in which they're calling us to be those things. But I think more than that, what the Sermon on the Mount, excuse me, what the Beatitudes are giving to us is they're just giving us a description of what Christians are. There can be the temptation for us to look at each of these Beatitudes with sort of like a grab bag mentality. Like, okay, I am that one. Okay, I'm not really, I'm not really that one, but I am kind of that one. And that's not, that's not the intention here. What Jesus is giving to us and what Matthew is accounting for us is a description of simply what a Christian is. Each of these things. Let's look at a few of them. First, poor in spirit. My friends, you will never find a greater antithesis to the world than what lies at the heart of this verse. The world puts emphasis on self-reliance, on self-confidence, on self-expression. 60 years ago, Dave Martin Lloyd-Jones, preaching this in London, said, believe in yourself is the idea that is absolutely controlling the life of men in the present age. That was 60 years ago in London, and it is absolutely just as true today. Believe in yourself is the idea that is absolutely controlling the life of men in the present age. Confidence, assurance, express yourself, believe in yourself, realize your potential. This is the message of the media and pop culture all around us. I was reading this in the last couple weeks here. It said, it was a description uh, in Slate magazine. It says, happiness is the consequence of personal effort. You fight for it, strive for it, insist upon it, and sometimes even travel around the world looking for it. You have to participate relentlessly in the manifestation of your own blessings. And once you have achieved that state of happiness, you must never become lax about maintaining it. You must make a mighty effort to keep swimming upward into that happiness forever, to stay afloat on top of it. What a weight. What a massive burden. But if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you are poor in spirit. If you're a Christian, it means that you recognize and you know your own spiritual poverty. D.A. Carson, he called it spiritual bankruptcy. He says a Christian simply is aware of their own spiritual bankruptcy. That they have nothing in their hands before God. That bankruptcy analogy and image is helpful because I think sometimes we think, hey, I've done some good things, I've done some bad things, I've helped people, I've made sacrifices, I've made some mistakes, but on the whole, I think my account is in the black. On the whole, I think my account is largely in the black. But that is not the disposition of a Christian. Only Christians and those that are becoming Christians can say, I have nothing in my life that merits your blessing at all. It's not just saying I've sinned. It's not just saying that I've sinned. It's even going further than that. It's saying that even the good things I've done in my life were done for myself. That even the good things that I've done for my life, in my life, were done for myself. That even our good things are fraught with sinful, self-relying, self-interested motives. A Christian, as Tim Keller has said, not only repents of their good things, but a Christian have, of their bad things, a Christian has learned to repent of their good things too because they know that so many of the good things that we've done have been fraught and, just, and, and shot through with self-relying motives. 
but a Christian truly, absolutely sees their spiritual bankruptcy before God and says, simply to the cross, I cling. Nothing in my hands do I bring before thee. Simply to the cross, I cling. Isaiah 57 says, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. You see the, you see the, the, the gap where it says the holy one dwells. The holy one dwells high and lifted up. He dwells in the heavens. He dwells in that transcendent place. And it says he dwells down with the lowly. He dwells with the contrite, the lowly in spirit, the broken, the needy, the spiritually bankrupt. This whole middle ground, this whole gap in between, this lukewarm stuff, this kind of self-reliant, it says the Holy One doesn't dwell there. That's not where God is to be found. The middle ground of self-sufficiency is not where the Lord is found. The middle ground of pride and of human strength is not where the Holy One is found. He's found in two places, high and lifted up, and with the lowly, with the contrite. Is that good news to you this morning? All of us come here. If we're honest, we all come here this morning as broken people. We get up on Sunday mornings, we put ourselves together, we get in the car and we drive here because we just hope that we can hear something from God. We need to be refreshed. We need to be lifted up. And my friends, here's the good news. He dwells with the lowly. He dwells with the contrite in spirit. He dwells with those who come to him with open hands. Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Mourning. Blessed are those who mourn. Simply means, I take to mean, that we mourn over our state. To mourn is to be broken over our sin. To mourn is to know our condition, to be one who's poor in spirit, and to mourn over it. It's a sentiment that the apostle gives us in Romans 7.24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? A mourning of our state, an acknowledgement of our sin before God. Why do you mourn over your sin, my friends? The apostle will also tell us in 2 Corinthians 7.10 that godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There's a distinction there. The apostle gives us what he calls a godly grief, and he gives us what he calls a worldly grief. A godly grief acknowledges, as our brother Severin read this morning, that our sin is ultimately and absolutely and in the end a sin before a holy God first and foremost. Against you and you alone can David say, I have sinned. This is the man who committed adultery. This is the man who had Uriah killed on the front lines. And he says, he has the audacity to say in his prayer to God, to you and to you alone have I sinned. 
That is a godly grief. That is a mourning over the state of our sin before God. A worldly grief, on the other hand, is sorry for the consequences. It's simply mourning over the consequences of your own mistakes. It's when you say, I'm sorry if that hurt you. I'm sorry if when I said this, that was offensive to you. That's not an apology, first of all. A worldly grief is what many have called the repentance of Cain. Cain was sorry for the consequences. And Paul says that that kind of grief produces death. It doesn't lead to repentance and salvation. It doesn't lead to being comforted by the gospel, as Jesus says here. Those who mourn will be comforted, but those who simply mourn because of the consequences of their sin won't be. Mourning is to truly see ourselves before God and to repent, to turn from our sinful ways and to turn in faith and trust to Jesus and Jesus alone, to acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy and poverty, to mourn over it, to repent, and those kinds of people will be comforted with the gracious balm of the gospel. And third, it's a meekness. It's a meekness. Meek means without power and completely dependent on God. Without power and completely dependent on God. Meekness is a simply a true view of oneself. A man can never be meek if he isn't poor in spirit. And a man can never be meek unless he sees himself as a sinner, so he mourns. There is nothing that he can boast about. He knows what he deserves, and he simultaneously sees what he's getting instead. He knows what he ought to deserve, but he knows instead he's getting blessing. He's getting the kingdom. He's getting comfort. It's a meekness. Even the Greek lexicon takes this word meekness and says, it's not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. It's meekness. You know a meek person when you've been around them because you just delight to be around this person. This person is more interested in you than they are in themselves. They're a great conversation partner because they're just looking at you and they're asking questions and they're drawing you out. They're meek. They don't have this disposition of their own self-importance, their own self-reliance. And this kind of person is only wrought through conversion. This kind of person is only wrought by one who sees their own spiritual poverty before God, who mourns over it and is thereby comforted through the balm of the gospel, making them to be a meek, delightful, pleasant person. So upside down from the world. So counterintuitive to us. Don't express yourself realize that you're a a poor in spirit, broken sinner, become meek, and then truly be the kind of person that people love to be around. Hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake. You know, the Old Testament context here, when we think righteousness, um, many of our minds probably quickly go to Pauline righteousness or positional righteousness Um, justification kind of righteousness, which is half true. I think that's, that's, that's there in this text. 
But there's also a sense uh, in, in the Hebrew scriptures, this sense of righteousness is, is, um, is much more uh, longstanding. It's much more, um, it, it has so much more meaning to it than simply positional righteousness. It means, it, it means a, a righteous life. It means a, a life of, of peace, a life where relationships are, 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 are set to rights. Um, and this thirsting, this hungering sees this kind of life, sees this kind of righteousness, and it's deeply convicted within oneself. It's this kind of righteousness, this kind of hungering and thirsting that says, I was playing in mud puddles, but now I see the sea. I was twilling around with this child's play, but now I see all the blessings that God has for me. I, 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 I was living in this kind of life, but now I see the good life that God offers me through the gospel, and I hunger for it. I thirst for it. There's a deep conviction within yourself to long for it, to grab for it, to get more of it. What do you... When you hunger and thirst for something, what do you do? Do you, um, do, you, do you go to Home Depot and, and get a bag of soil and uh, go over to the, to the seeds and, and pull out some cucumber seeds and some tomato seeds and, and plant it and, and water it out and, and wait six months for some uh, cucumbers to come up? No. When you hunger, when you are literally hungering and thirsting, you ask for intervention. When you're truly hungering, when you're longing, when you're deeply in need of something now, you need it now. That's the immediacy. That's the urgency that Jesus is giving here. It's a hungering and a thirsting now. I need it now. Then you ask for intervention. And my friends, if we are hungering, and if you are hungering and thirsting for this kind of righteousness, then the gospel says, and this text give us, gives us the awesome promise that you can and will be filled. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. That's a promise to us. Long for Jesus this deeply Long for his kingdom this profoundly. Be so poor in spirit that you see your spiritual bankruptcy. Mourn over your sin to such a degree that you repent of all your ways. Become this meek kind of person and so by hunger and thirst for that kind of righteousness and you will be satisfied. Now what I'm going to do here is I'm going to make a little turn and talk about this idea of blessedness for a minute. And I'm going to do so by talking about being pure in heart. You could take everything that I've said so far um, to hear me saying, um, you can get to the good life through Jesus, that you can sort of treat Jesus like a, 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 a goods giver to you, that uh, here is a, here's a little, a little trick way that um, you can actually make it to the good life. But my friends, 
True blessedness, true blessedness can never be sought directly. True blessedness is and will always be the byproduct of something else. If you seek blessing first and foremost, you won't find it. But if you seek these other things for the sake of their own goodness, for the sake of their own goodness, then you will find them. We are not meant to hunger and thirst after experiences, and we are not meant to hunger and thirst even after blessedness. If we truly want to be happy and blessed, we must hunger and thirst after righteousness. We must not put blessedness or happiness or experience in the first place. But the whole project of this world is to seek blessedness. My friends, the greatest things in life, the greatest blessings in life, the greatest happinesses in life oftentimes come to us as byproducts of seeking something else. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Seek all these things and you'll never get them. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. It's like the doctor. It's like the doctor who always treats the symptom or the pain and never actually seeks the cause. The doctor that is always just treating the pain, the doctor that's always just treating the symptom and never pursuing the cause isn't a very good doctor. The same is true with us. And here is the point of it all. That in our heart, in the secrecy of our thoughts and the secrecy of our feelings where no one knows but God, what we are at this invisible root matters as much to God as what we are at the visible branch. 1 Samuel 16 says, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. From the heart are all the issues of life. Whatever proceeds from from the mouth proceeds from the heart. For out of the heart come evil thoughts like murder and adultery and fornication, false witness, slander, etc. These are what defile a man. Or Matthew 12, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's going on inside us, what's in the deep private recesses of our lives are what's most crucial and most critical to our Lord Jesus. Jesus did not come into the world simply because we had some bad habits that needed to be broken. He came into the world because we have dirty hearts that need to be purified. And when God gives us a pure heart through the gospel, we get God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. God is the end of all our pursuing. When our hearts are changed and we are born again and we can see the kingdom of heaven and we can see God, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. This idea of being pure in heart means to be single in purpose. 
It means to be single in purpose. So blessed are the pure in heart means that they have a radical, single-focused, laser-line precision in their pursuit of God. And the result of this is that they will actually see God. And the result of that is that they will be truly happy. Listen to Jonathan Edwards. Edwards says, The love of God is also the most suitable entertainment of the soul of man. There are many other delights which men indulge themselves, but this delight of seeing God, the understanding approves of. It is a thing most agreeable to reason that the soul should delight itself in this and more approves of it so that when it is enjoyed, it is with inward peace and a sweet tranquility of the soul. There is nothing in human nature that is opposite to it, but everything agrees and conforms to it. What Edwards is telling us is that the chief aim of the human heart was to gaze and behold on the beauty and glory of God. And when the heart actually does that, when there's a laser, pure in heart focus to see God, that is when the human heart and the human soul truly is happy. The pleasure with the pleasure which the soul has in seeing God is not only its delight, but it is at the same time its highest perfection and excellency. Man's true happiness is his perfection and true excellency. What that means is the greatest thing that you were given capacity to do was to behold God. That's the greatest thing that your soul, your heart can do. It's its truest excellency is what Edwards calls it. And when your soul is doing the thing that it was primarily and chiefly made to do, then and only then will you be truly happy. That's blessedness. That's blessedness. To truly behold his power and beauty. To truly gaze upon him so that your soul is doing the absolute, ultimate, chief thing it was made to do. And that comes from a laser pursuit of this God. That's a promise. Be pure in heart. Be absolutely focused on me and you will see me. And when you see me, you will be doing the greatest thing that your soul was ever meant to do. Blessed is the man who sees God. The man who sees God is happy. The man who sees God is truly blessed. Our highest good Our greatest joy is to behold his glory. And then we finally and rightly come to real happiness and not before. A pure heart has a single purpose, to treasure the glory of God. And that heart is doing the greatest thing it was made to do. And when that heart sees God, it is truly blessed and it is really happy. And until that happens, until we find our joy in what we were made for, we won't be happy. The chief aim of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Well, let me move us and transition us to a close.
and just remind us where we started, that without the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Sermon on the Mount will crush you. Without the gospel, the Sermon on the Mount will simply crush you. It'll crush you because it puts before you a standard that is so awesome and regal that no one can actually stand before it. You'll be like that person who's, that that quote I read earlier, that there's this constant upward battle to attain and to reach that kind of happiness. But a Christian, a Christian is someone who has been saved by grace alone through faith alone. A Christian is one who the gospel has come into their life and their life is now marked by the Beatitudes. A Christian is someone who sees their absolute poverty in spirit, mourns over it, thirsts for righteousness, is laser-focused in their pursuit of God, all because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, the apostle, he says to us in Philippians 3.9, He says that I want to be found in him. I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I want to be found in him, Paul says. I want to be found in him, and I want to know, and I know that the righteousness that I need to be found in him is the righteousness that comes from God, and that kind of righteousness depends on absolute faith. You know, there's a, uh, there's a book by Ian DeGuid. Um, you might know his wife wrote some books too. Anyway, we'll talk about that later. Uh, the book is called Hero of Heroes. Hero of Heroes. And uh, in this book, it's about the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things that he does in the first couple chapters, because that's the only chapters I read, um, is, is he lays out for us this idea of blessedness in the Old Testament and the ways in which Jesus is recapitulating it and sort of transforming it here in the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things that this author points out is that in the Old Testament scriptures, he means blessing is oftentimes to be favored, and also it means to be envied to some degree. David and Joshua, you know, these were men that were blessed. But yet, what this author shows us is that when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, and when we see Jesus himself, there's this strange kind of hero. The hero of heroes is different. The hero of heroes is different than the man David and the man Joshua, and even this, these beatitudes, they're pointing us to the real hero. That these beatitudes, before they describe you and me, these beatitudes describe Jesus. How can you and I become rich as kings? For theirs is the kingdom. How do you and I become rich as kings? We become rich as kings because he became poor. He became poor for our sake. How is it that you and I in the second beatitude can be comforted? Those who mourn shall be comforted. How is it that we can be comforted? It's only because he first mourned. He wept alone in the garden. He mourned alone in the garden. Father, please take this cup. Unanswered prayer in the garden. Silence from heaven in the garden. He stood alone mourning at his trial where he was wrongly condemned. 
He's alone on the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's mourning. Mourning as he receives the wrath of God poured out on his head. Mourning as he was forsaken on the cross so that when you and I mourn, we will always be comforted. When we mourn, we will never look into the abyss of hell as Jesus did. But when we mourn, we will always look into the loving arms of God. Christian, why do you and I inherit the earth? Because Jesus became meek. Jesus became like a lamb before his shearers. Jesus was stripped of everything so that we could inherit the earth. Everything was taken from him. Even his garments were taken from him and were, ca- and were sold with the casting of lots. How can you and I be filled with righteousness, my friends? Because on the cross, Jesus first said, I thirst. He thirsted for righteousness so that you and I could have it. Why do you and I receive mercy? Because on the cross, he received none. No mercy, just wrath. Why will you and I someday be able to see God? Because Jesus Christ was the one who was truly pure in heart. He was the one who was truly steadfast in purpose. He was the one that was laser focused. He was the one that was single-minded in his pursuit of God. And yet on the cross and yet in the garden, he said, God, where are you? Why do you and I have the great title of sons and daughters of God? Why do you and I have that title? Because the true son of God, the rightful son of God, the true son of David, the true son of Abraham brought us peace. He reconciled us to God. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. My friends, one of our core values as a church is to celebrate and to display the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. To celebrate, it simply means that our affections are now God-directed. A better word that Jonathan Edwards used for celebrate or affections was this word fitness. Psalm 33 says, praise him with fitness. It means that everything he's done for me, it's now fitting simply for me to adore him for my affections to be on him, to celebrate him, to simply be a son and daughter of God because he's reconciled me to himself, to behold his power and his beauty and his glory. Do you see how this changes us? The person described in the Beatitudes is a converted person. It is a person that celebrates the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. The Beatitudes show us someone that's been radically gripped by the gospel. And being gripped by the gospel allows us to become all the more this kind of person. Once converted, once we see the blessing of heaven are ours by faith through the finished work of Jesus, then we can begin to live the truly regal life that is described to us in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. But first, and always first, we celebrate. Our hearts are drawn to him because he is the truly beautiful and glorious one. Let us pray. Our Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful, God, for these beatitudes that first and foremost we see that they 
give us a picture of our Lord Jesus, who was steadfast in purpose for our sake. We're grateful, Lord, for this word. We pray that as we come to the Lord's table, we come to the highlight of this service, we would commune with you afresh. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.